You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. I am in addiction recovery. What a wonderful week or so it has been. Let's dive right in so this doesn't turn into an hour and a half long podcast because I've got a really awesome topic for you all today. For those of you, whether you're new or old into sobriety and recovery, today we are going to discuss whether you're addicted to negative thinking, which can often be a trigger activation mechanism to go back to old behaviors. Before we dive into that and discuss how automatic negative thoughts in a much more in-depth way than I have discussed it in the past can be potentially taking you off your path and sending you back down a road that you're sick and tired of being sick and tired of, I'd love to just highlight a little bit about what's been going on this week in my life, specifically about the Super Bowl. Because if you have been listening to my show for any stretch of time, then you realize that the football has been a trigger for me for many years of my life. It was the whole point of my drinking was to get smashed and watch football games and just nonstop football. And when the Super Bowl comes, it reminds me of all of those years that I would get blacked out, wasted on a Sunday, and then turn that into like a week-long binge fest. And the Super Bowl that comes to mind the most would be my last one drinking, which was the Super Bowl 50 between the Denver Broncos and the Carolina Panthers when Peyton Manning won his second Super Bowl um, and was able to, you know, ride off into the sunset. And that was February 7th of 2016. And I got so intoxicated during that game that I basically blacked out at halftime. Um, I don't remember leaving the Magic Castle where I was watching it. And then I spent the next five or six days just getting hammered in my house. Just, I mean, absolutely just blackout after blackout after blackout after blackout. So much so to the point that the only thing I really remembered about that Super Bowl, and I'm a huge Broncos fan and I've loved Peyton Manning for years, was the Coldplay, Bruno Mars, Beyonce halftime show. And I remember that specifically because I would wake up from a blackout and I wouldn't remember who won the game. And so I would turn the game back on and I would start to drink and I would make it to about the halftime every single time and blackout and wake back up and rewind the game and watch it over again. And as the end of the week began to approach and the drinking became more and more fierce and, and violent, not me, being a violent person. I was, nobody was around. It's really odd how my roommates just seemed to disappear when I would go on these benders. But like my, my drinking was violent, just chasing it with, it was absurd. I wasn't violent the way I was drinking was. If that makes sense to many of you, you'll understand where it's just like, okay, how many Irish car bombs can I consume in the next 30 minutes to black myself out kind of behavior? And it was vicious, and that hangover was out of control. And, you know, 2016 was a bad year for me. I had been arrested, uh, found, passed out on the street. I'm not sure if I got punched a couple times or if I just bashed up my face by falling on the ground. I have no idea. But I came to in a police car and then passed out again in the police station in the drunk tank uh, where they let me out at like 5 in the morning. And luckily I had my cell phone, so I was able to get an Uber. Um, And that was the Green Bay Packers were playing, I want to say, the Seattle Seahawks but maybe the Arizona Cardinals, not positive, but I know it was the Packers. And that was the day I got arrested and ended up in a drunk tank in Los Angeles. And so just a few weeks later, here I am blacking myself out during the Super Bowl for six straight days. 2016 was absolutely out of control um, from, you know, potentially getting into a car accident while drinking and driving to breaking my leg while skydiving to drinking myself to death leading up to my ultimate sobriety date of January 13th of 2017. 2016 was a bad, bad year. So now when I'm watching the Super Bowl and I realize that what used to be a huge trigger for me, what used to drive me down into the depths of my despair and suffering now gets to be this culmination of an amazing football season. I get to have a wonderful party here at my house. The first time I've ever thrown a Super Bowl party uh, as an adult, which is what I would consider any time 
once I stopped drinking. Definitely in college, I threw parties. But that was like, hey, we're going to have three kegs and a bunch of blow and a bunch of drugs. Why don't you everybody just come over and act like a bunch of dumbasses? So certainly now in my 40s, I throw different kinds of parties where some people had a beer or two, but for the most part, nobody was drinking. And we all had a great time, and there was commercial bingo, and it was just really, really enjoyable. And it was a great game to boot. And so the Super Bowl, to me, is an opportunity to really reflect on how much I've grown and where so many amazing changes have happened in my life because it really is my favorite sport. I don't watch anything else other than the Tour de France and the Olympics that matter. So I don't really care about basketball or baseball or hockey and won't turn on Sports Center until they start talking about the combine. So the Super Bowl is my opportunity to just relish on the fact that now I'm sober and I get to enjoy these games with a clear mind, clear heart. And I'll never forget having Ron, uh, who is the person I shout out at the end of the show. When I say shout out to Sunshine, that's Ron. He was the first person I ever told I was sober. Uh, he was sitting to my right, and my buddy Paul was sitting to my left at the Magic Castle the next year in 2017 when the Patriots came back from like 28-3 to to beat the Falcons. That was my first ever Super Bowl. They went with me to support me, to sit side by side with me, to just help encourage me not to consume alcohol. And mind you, I was intended on quitting drinking after the Super Bowl. And the body just rejected alcohol so much and so fiercely on February, on January 12th that I just, I just said no more. And that's when I called Kaiser. And so that's the 13th. And then, you know, just three, four weeks later, here comes the Super Bowl, which was generally a huge trigger for me. And with Paul and Ron by my side, um, I'll never forget leaving the Magic Castle and walking them both back to their apartments on the way back to mine and just how happy we all were that I was able to go through that game and not feel the desire to drink and not try to do anything of that manner. It was just huge celebration for us. So I want you to just think back to some of those moments where you would have previously drank and how... You can celebrate the fact that, yeah, a lot of people would say, dude, that's, are you kidding me? Just don't drink for a game. But when you've been a drunk for 22 years and the Super Bowl has been your opportunity to really just take it to a whole nother level, making it through that game back in 20 or uh, yeah, 2017 was monumental and it mattered to me. And so I just wanted to take a little moment at the beginning of the show to just celebrate the fact that this was my seventh Super Bowl sober um, they are just more and more amazing every single year. And the gravity of this occurring in my life at the same time that so many physical ailments seem to be occurring within me at the same time that so much is, seems to be going right. School's going really well. I'm well on my way to my fourth straight A. I've absolutely figured out how to study and how to write essays and do things much less time. My la my essay yesterday took me about six hours. And if you remember at the beginning of this journey, it was taking me 20, 25 hours to write an essay. I have literally figured out a system to do the research, to build the reference, to do all of this. And it's really important that I stress this with you all, that when you start something new, it's going to be discombobulating. It's going to have some difficulty to it because you're not going to be used to it. But if you just push through the difficult times at the beginning, you'll begin to formulate a system, you'll begin to create a process, and you will be able to do things easier. This was in August. I'm in now February, and I feel very confident that moving forward that, yes, will there be difficulties unforeseen that could arise? Absolutely. It's a three years master's program with two years of practicum, internship, and supervised hours afterwards. This is a five-year journey. When somebody asks you what your five-year plan is, a lot of people don't even know how to answer that question. Well, when it comes to mine, it's definitely going to have school at the very center of it. So this is what it is, and I'm settling into just a vibe and a pattern and just admitting to myself that, yes, will this be a lot at times? Sure. Have I been able to figure it out up to this point? Absolutely. Does that tell me that I can figure it out more in the future? It gives me the confidence to believe I can. And it's the confidence of believing you can that is the growth mindset that we're seeking to achieve within ourselves as we go to make massive changes in our lives. See, a lot of people just want to stop drinking alcohol, stop doing drugs, and say, okay, life just fix itself. But it's not going to work that way. There was pain and suffering and sorrow and despair. 
all of that culminated and accumulated and continued to heap upon what was already going on inside of you that caused the drinking in the drug use to get out of control to begin with. Because there are those take-it-or-leave-it people who can dabble in a little bit of drugs. I know those people. I was talking to one of my clients the other day, Augustine, about this. He's like, yeah, I know people who can go off and do a 20-bag of blow and you know clean their garage, and then they don't touch it again for five months. I mean, I'm not one of those people. I don't, that doesn't, I don't even know how to rationally get that. Like, what do you mean you just did it 20 bag one time? Like, no, 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 no. We're emptying our bank account here. (laughs) What rents do tomorrow? Yeah. Well, my nose is hungry. So screw rent. We're just what we're going to do. So I'm not one of those people. And if you're listening to this show, you're probably not one of those people either. And if you're listening to this show as somebody who's looking to support someone, who's also not one of those people who can take it or leave it, then this episode's absolutely going to help you because you're going to be able to start noticing where automatic negative thoughts might be infiltrating into you as well as them. Because that's what a lot of this stuff comes down to. It's shifting our thinking. It's going from being unaware of what it is that we have been thinking, feeling, and doing for so long and becoming very self-aware. And I've been learning a lot about psychological theories over the last few weeks. And a lot of them claim that self-actualization is very difficult and may not even be attainable, whether it's Freud or Jung or Adler who say that it may not even occur at all. And if so, it's later on in life to Carl Rogers, who has this person-centered theory where it's all about being genuine and effective and uh, having unconditional positive regard and empathy towards people and guiding them. But even then, you may never reach that total actual self-actualization. If I was going to paint a metaphor of what self-actualization might be, it would, to me, be uh, very similar to taking the red pill in Matrix, where all of a sudden you see life exactly how it is. And it's not being um, skewed by your previous thinking, that you're in the moment and you realize this is what's going on and this is who I am. It's that level of awareness about not just why you say what you say when you say it or why you think or feel or do what you do and think and feel when you do those things. But it's, it's about really, one, getting to some of that root cause of it so that you you understand what's been driving you this entire time. And it's also the ability to just let it wash off your back and say, okay, well, that's what I just did five minutes ago. What could I do differently now? Because we want to hold on to our past experiences as some sort of barometer about who we are going to become when that's asinine. Because There's so many different ways that we can experience life and we can grow and we can change to say, well, this is how I've always done it. So this is how I'll always continue to do it. It takes us out of the seat of creator and puts us into the seat of victim. Well, this is, I'm just a victim of my old behaviors. I'm just a victim of who I used to be. And this is a great segue straight into this discussion about automatic negative thoughts. Because when we have automatic negative thoughts, what we're allowing ourselves to do is to spiral down a version of ourselves that used to be, but isn't necessarily who we are now or who we can become if we decide to shift our thoughts. Now, I've done episodes on automatic negative thoughts before, and why I really want to center this around the idea that of you asking yourself, are you addicted to negative thinking, is because I came across a book by an author named Daniel G. Amen or Amen. I'm not really sure. Um, I was at a grocery store the other day, and for random reasons, I like to walk down grocery store aisles that have the books because they oftentimes can just have little whimsical books that are just really interesting to find. And since there's not a bookstore within like seven miles of my house, I can't just walk into a Barnes and Noble or a Books a Million anytime and just peruse the self-help shelves. So really the only opportunity I have to see tangible books in front of me is going to a grocery store. And one caught my eye by this author, Daniel G. Amen. I'm just going to say Amen, Amen. I really like Amen because there's a little bit of a religious connotation to it. Um, Not a lot and nothing that would disturb anybody who isn't necessarily religious in order to read this, but he does mention spirituality and religion in the book a little bit. And the title of the book is called Conquer Your Negative Thoughts, The Secret to Emotional Freedom and Happiness. 
Now, of course, doing what I do and having a business like I run and seeking to be the licensed professional counselor that I'm going to attain in a few years, of course I'm going to be drawn to a book called Conquer Your Negative Thoughts. So I crack this open just to see what it's going to be about. And the entire first like 30 pages is all about automatic negative thoughts. And you know how I feel about those. I talk about them so often. So of course, immediately bought the book. I mean, it's like $8. Of course I'm going to buy this thing. And it is just fascinating. And so what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the way that this author frames automatic negative thoughts. Because I have discussed it in the past, but I haven't broken it down in the way that this author did. And what's really cool is he actually comes up with names for different kinds of automatic negative thoughts. And that's immediately, I mean, it's like page nine. I remember flipping through it being like, this is cool. Like, could I have thought of these things? Sure, if I wanted to spend the time thinking about it. Or I could just take lessons from other people and incorporate them into my life now. And that's the awesome thing about taking in a lot of information is that you start to find answers to questions that you didn't even know you had in the most unlikely of places like, you know, the Walmart neighborhood markets bookstore bookshelf aisle. <laughs> so, or was it a Publix? It's not important which one it was. It was the fact that I found it. So let's dive into automatic negative thought thinking. And let's decide which one of these is the most attainable for you to release now, right? We want to sort of start crushing these little ants. We want to get them out of our lives. And so let's run through this list so that this doesn't, again, turn into an hour-long podcast. We're already at 16 minutes. So already, maybe a little bit further along in my introduction than I would have preferred, but you guys know how I like to share with you about what's going on in my life, and I really thought that that Super Bowl story would just be something that would uh, allow you to understand what it was that I was going through in my life and where things are going and heading toward now. So, all or nothing, just that bad, guilt beating, labeling, fortune telling, mind reading, blaming, less than, if only, and I'll be happy when. These are the nine primary automatic negative thoughts that the author brings to our awareness in his book of Conquer Your Negative Thoughts. And if you, I'll put a link to it for Amazon, at least in the show notes that if y'all just want to, you know, find it, go buy it, read it, or do whatever you want with that information. And what is really cool about this is that once you hear them labeled out, it actually becomes much more obvious to you where you're utilizing these automatic negative thoughts in your life and where you can begin to release them. So let's start with the first one, all or nothing ants. I talk a lot about this in this show, about these definitives, about these universal quantifiers where we start using words like never, everyone, always, where we don't allow ourselves to have any thought process around there being any inkling that there could be another option, that it's it's all or nothing. That's it. Everyone hates me. Nobody's going to love me. When we have these kind of automatic negative thoughts, we take options and choice away from ourselves, and we paint ourselves into a corner where this is definitively how it is. And nothing that I do or say or act or shift or change is ever going to change this. So if you've ever said, I can never be, I will never get, everyone is always. When you have these kind of thoughts, you limit yourself. No one cares about me and I'm an abject failure. My husband is the devil incarnate are three examples that the author puts into the book. I'm so bored, there's nothing to do. This is a big one for me because I don't find myself bored zero. It does not occur because I am a naturally curious person. So there's always a curiosity going on within me. If I'm sitting here staring at my phone and there's no social media I want to get on, there's nothing that I really need to be looking at, but I'm looking to kill some time, I'm either just going to stare at the trees and watch the squirrels bounce around and look for butterflies, or maybe I'm going to open up the Headspace app and do a quick little meditation or you know, find something really cool and interesting to read um, on my phone that might, you know, I don't know, further teach me something that's amazing. Um, I love the Headway app. It's got really cool little uh, books that it's summarized in like nine minutes. I can listen to those. Um, the Headspace thing, I can always throw on that or go to Spotify and listen to a five-minute meditation. Like, I don't get bored. There's always a curiosity in me that allows me to find something interesting going on around me. 
See what a good use of a definitive universal quantifier I just did? Always. There's always something I can find that's interesting to me. That is a positive way of using a definitive like always versus everyone is always hating me. Everyone is always talking behind my back. These are all or nothing automatic negative thoughts, and they're just not true. Nothing can be everything all the time. There's going to be that outlier. Well, she's always going to hate me. My wife is never going to forgive me. It's that's that's just not true. It might take decades for the forgiveness to occur, but that's on them more than it is on you. You have to understand that you can make your amends, you can seek forgiveness, but if somebody decides they want to hate you for who you used to be, then that's the poison that they're drinking. That's not the poison you have to drink. You've made your amends, you've asked for forgiveness, you are dutifully behaving around them as well as you can, knowing that we're all humans and mistakes are going to happen. We're not going to be on time every time. We're not going to say the right thing every time. There's going to be mistakes in life. And if that person wants to keep seeing you through the filter of you're a drunk, drugged out asshole, then that's on them. Because there are people out there who are sober, you know, as a judge or a jury or a jaybird, whatever the euphemism I was trying to find there, that still make mistakes. They show up late. They don't say the right things. They don't always do the right things. But nobody's like, oh, it's because you're sober that you're always late. You know, <laughs> right? They just, people are given a bit of levity for just being human. If others don't want to see you through that and they want to experience you as an all or nothing, then that's something that you have to decide if you want to be around. And certainly inside your own mind, I want you to start releasing the all or nothings, the I can never be's, I will never get, everyone is always. The second one, the just the bad ants. Right? This is where your mind is programmed to focus on the bad things in order to keep us alive. Now, let me explain what I mean right here, because this is going to go back to the ancient times when we were like cave people, where if a twig snapped, that means that there was a saber-toothed cat behind us, that if we heard stomping or the ground rumbling, that means that there was a bunch of woolly mammoths heading our way. We spent tens of thousands of years as a very Neanderthal homo sapien. We were using rudimentary tools. We didn't really have language. We definitely weren't able to tell stories the way we are now. I mean, the printing press has existed for like 100 or 150 years or something like that. We are not as advanced as we think we are. We think we're more advanced because we're walking around with a supercomputer in our pocket. But yet, we still go to the bathroom. We still have to eat. We still have to drink in order to maintain a life. We still have to breathe oxygen. Right, We can still get sick, we can still die. All of the things that used to bother us a hundred years ago, you know, think back to the Oregon Trail where dysentery or a cut on your arm could mean that it gets infected and causes sepsis in your blood. That was only 140 years ago. 1883, it's a TV show on Paramount Plus, and it's about uh, this family traveling the Oregon Trail to get up to Oregon, and they ultimately stop where Yellowstone ends up becoming. And that's 1883. We're in 2024, right? That's only 141 years ago. 141 years ago. Look at the leaps in technological advancement we've had. Hell, the next incarnation of that show is called 1923. They were just getting motor cars and refrigerators, and they were talking about electricity finally making it out from the big cities. That was only 100 years ago. We have made humongous technological advancements, but it does not mean that we as a species are advanced. It means that our tools are advanced. We still are going through the same kind of thought processes that have dominated us for tens of thousands of years. And when we just see the bad, it is our mind wanting us to stay focused on the negative consequences around us, potential negative consequences that could occur around us in order to keep us safe. But when all you're seeing is just the bad things, then you're not able to open your eyes to the good. So when we say things like the world is the most dangerous thing ever, um, I can only get into the college of my second choice. Um, I you know, can't possibly uh, be sober because I have been a drunk for so long. All we have seen is just the bad aspects of our lives. I, I want to love people who don't love me back. We're just seeing the bad. When all we allow ourselves to see is the bad, we are completely blinding ourselves to the good. And we've talked about biases in the past, 
right? We've talked about confirmation bias, where if you believe that somebody doesn't love you or won't accept you, then no matter what they do around you, your mind will be looking for evidence that confirms that bias, that they won't ever trust you again because you were a drunk. Well, it's also a little bit more of a perspective bias. A perspective bias is when your perspective biases you towards seeing anything else. So if your perspective of yourself is that you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict, and that's all you'll ever be, then your perspective is showing you just the bad aspects of your life. And then your confirmation bias is going to kick in, and it's going to make sure that what you think about yourself is further entrenched. Because the mind doesn't want to be wrong. And I know this is screwed up, because you'd think you'd want to be wrong about saying negative things about yourself. But the mind's programmed to think that if it tells you negative things about yourself, that you'll somehow work on those negative things. You'll seek to not be those negative things. But enough studies have been done that prove that beating ourselves up and tearing ourselves down does not actually motivate us to make a change. It actually can debilitate our enthusiasm, our inspiration to make changes. That we are much better off when we encourage ourselves, when we support ourselves. And this works for any human in your life. If you are trying to, if you think that by beating somebody down and telling them, oh, you're stupid, you're never going to amount to much, that somehow they're just going to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and figure it out, then we are completely negating what the human experience is actually like where we seek communal opportunities. We seek connections and contributions and significance in other people's lives. And when we tear one another down, then we are going to have that perspective bias that that's how people treat us. It's going to be confirmed by the brain so it doesn't have to be wrong. And ultimately, we're going to get the outcome bias that we think that we're going to get. So we're going to have a perspective bias that says, that my ex-wife will never love me or never even be nice to me. Then anytime she's even remotely rude or side-eyes you, now all of a sudden that's a confirmation bias. And then you have the outcome bias where you had believed that this was going to be the outcome. So your mind was just building you a pathway to get to that outcome. Perspective bias feeds confirmation bias. Confirmation bias feeds outcome bias. And now we get the entire loop back over again. Just the bad ants is something I would love for you all to begin to release today. The third one, labeling ants. I'm a drunk. I am stupid. I am lazy. These are identity level statements that fix the perspective bias on yourself or on another person. If you believe it to be true, then you are going to prove it to yourself that it is true. The kicker about the labeling ants is that we can label ourselves a lot of different ways. I am poor, I am stupid, I am ugly, I am fat, I am dumb. All of the ones that, you know, I am selfish and weak and weird and I'm, I'm a bad son or father or mother or brother or sister. Or I'm a bad human being. Any of these labeling ants are not going to benefit us because when you say I am, it is a labeling statement that your identity is paying attention to. And if you think about Dilt's Pyramid, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, any of these psychological theories, these systems that have been created when we're seeking to work our way up this pyramid to that self-actualization, to figuring out who we ultimately are, these identity level statements become the energy that we walk around the world believing ourselves to be. So if you think that you're a hard worker, if you think that you're a smart person, if you think that you give 100% of your love, if you believe that to yourself, then that's your perspective bias. Then your mind will confirm it for you and you'll get the outcomes that you've always believed that your perspective and your confirmations will feed you. So if you label yourself positively, I'm a loving person, I'm a caring person, that can seem like a positive attribute to have. But here's the kicker on that too. If you label yourself as, I am always a loving person, now you're taking all or nothing and you're combining it with labeling. And then what happens if you decide to not be loving one day? You're having a moment like any human can and you snap at somebody, you flip off the person who cut you off, you give side eye to somebody who, you know, says something cynical towards you. Now, all of a sudden, you might have an internal conflict. Well, I think I'm always a loving person, but I just behaved unloving. Now we can start going into the just the bad ants, where now your mind's like, see, you thought you were loving, but you're really not. You're actually a dick. 
So we have to be mindful of how when we label ourselves positively, that can actually come back and kick us in the butts. We want to just be mindful to just stay away from the labeling altogether. And it's more of a, in this moment, I am being. I can be something else later, but in this moment, this is who I'm being. Number four, guilt beating ants. Right? This is the guilt. Where you've got the guilt. You think, oh my goodness. I woulda, I shoulda, I oughta, I must, I have to. Right? You know, I should have stopped drinking well before 2017. You know, I ought to go downstairs and apologize to them right now. I must not behave that way anymore. I have to go to work. These are the guilt-beating ants that we think are benefiting us. I have to go to a meeting because that's the only way I'm going to stay sober. There's a guilt mechanism that we're seeking to trigger within ourselves that allows us to then go to the meeting and get the benefit of the connection and the contribution and the significance that occurs when you go to a communal area and have similarities with other people. I mean, that's why meetings do work. But there's so much more work to do outside the meeting. The meeting is just a piece of the puzzle. It is not the puzzle. And when we have this guilt that we want to just ruminate on, Right Then we just end up kicking ourselves in the ass about things that we're just human beings in the doing. Some of the examples that the author gives in the book, I ought to exercise more. I must give up sugar. I should be more giving. What we're doing is we're taking our past behaviors and we're letting them create guilt within us. Because no one who eats sugar at a very you know, moderate rate would ever say, I must give up sugar now. Right? You're only going to yell that at yourself if you've been abusing sugar. I should be more giving is guilt over the fact that you weren't more giving in the past. I ought to exercise more is something people would say to themselves if they think they're supposed to be exercising more. And when we have expectations upon our behavior, what have I said many, many times before, expectations, the leading cause of disappointment, we can get frustrated at ourselves because we're not behaving in a way that we want to behave in. And being a guilt-driven person is going to backfire. Much like I say that ego and pride aren't good fuel to making positive changes in your life, because you can talk yourself out of doing something positive if it's only fueled by pride and ego. I must have the best body ever to prove to my ex that they lost out on something amazing. Well, then you might go off and get something even more amazing than your ex. So now are you driven to continue working out? Are you driven to continue staying sober? Because if you just did it to get back at somebody and now your life has moved on and maybe you found something that's even better or at least you've placated yourself enough, then all of a sudden that driver that was causing you to want to stop drinking or get healthier goes away because you're no longer trying to put it to your ex. Now you're happy. Things are better in life. This is why pride and ego aren't good fuel, because the pride and the ego, they can be placated. The internal driver to shift has to be deeply ingrained within you that you want something from your life that only you can push yourself to attain. And bringing about guilt in order to achieve that is counterproductive. It's going to eat away at you. Not just your morals and your ethics and your values and your opinions and your beliefs, because you, that's it's just going to get in there. It's going to be like corrosive acid. It's just going to eat away at the things that you believe about yourself, because you're inevitably going to be able to find something to guilt yourself over about. So best to just start releasing the guilt aspect of your personality as soon as possible. Number five, fortune-telling ants. These are great, because we talk about mind reading a lot in this episode's in all the episodes, about how we don't really know what somebody else is thinking or feeling. We really don't. Did the person at the grocery store give you side eye because they're upset with you or did they needed a fart, right? Did the person laugh when you walked into the room because you're dressed funny or because somebody around them said something funny and it's just a coincidence that you happened to walk in the room at the same time? When we try to mind read, we find ourselves saying sentences like, I will never, I can't, I won't, none of this. When we, it's not just the mind reading of what other people are doing, but it's the mind reading about what we think we can do. I will never get that person to love me again because of all the ways I treated them when I was a drunk. Your mind reading 
not only about what your abilities to, to be able to achieve forgiveness are and to offer forgiveness, but also what that person's ability is to forgive you. I can't figure this out, right? Now it's like, it is a definitive. I cannot figure out how to write these essays faster. Right? That's like a fortune telling that, well, if I can't figure it out now, I'm not going to be able to figure it out later. This is why I like to tag on the word yet at the end of some of these universal quantifier sentences. I can't write this essay in under six hours yet. I won't know how to be emotionally stable and resilient in my sobriety and recovery yet. Because when I say I won't be able to figure that out, it's fortune telling a future that is unwritten. I spent enough years of my life telling myself I was a worthless piece of shit to be able to still do that now in my sobriety and recovery is not a behavior that I'm willing to subscribe to. The world is going to do a fine enough job of tearing us down and telling us that we're less than. And those people who do that to you have their own issues to resolve, but you don't need to be doing it to yourself. Some of the other examples uh, that the author puts in here is uh, like, none of my investments will pay off. I'll look stupid when I talk. I won't be able to buy a house. I'll never exercise again. My, my friend killed himself. I am doomed. My life is worthless. These are these mind-reading ants that are not benefiting you. And holding on to these and trying to predict only the worst things that will happen in your life is counterintuitive to the growth, the personal development that you seek. So you can go off and listen to a myriad of other podcasts, certainly many of my episodes, that will discuss the why of how we got into this situation. Our parents didn't love us enough. We had a major traumatic moment happen to us in our lives. We moved around. I mean, there's literally infinite reasons why the mind can start to justify needing to mute emotions. And then as soon as somebody introduces a controlled substance to us, all of a sudden it's like, hallelujah, this is what I've been looking for all along. I just need to imbibe this, do this one thing, and all of a sudden I'll be able to mute my emotions. Hallelujah. Like, emotions are awesome, but they are also a lot to contend with sometimes. When we fortune tell, we assume that there is no, we're fixed. There's no room for growth, that, there, that we are who we are. And that's just not true. Go read Carol Dweck's mindset book if you need somebody with a PhD to explain this to you. But I can assure you, having read that book at least double digit times, I have read or listened to that book. I can assure you that we are not fixed, that we are growth oriented creatures, that we are consistently, day in and day out, learning new things. It's just whether you have the self-awareness around your own behaviors and thoughts and feelings to realize that each and every day you learn something new. Are you taking action on it? That's up to you. Fortune-telling ants tell you that there's no reason to even try because you are who you are. Screw those ants. They are wrong. Number six, the mind-reading ants. Now, we touched upon this a little bit with fortune-telling ants, right, where we're trying to mind-read, we're trying to fortune-tell the future. The mind-reading ants are really about other people, where we think we know what the other person is thinking, where we think we know what they're experiencing. Some of the examples in the book, my dad thinks I'm weak, my boss doesn't like me, people at work don't care about me, my mom doesn't think I can measure up compared to my siblings. These are those mind reading. My dad will never love me again because of all the times I stole money out of his wallet to buy cocaine. You know, my grandma will never accept me for who I am because I'm blank, right? This, this mind reading ants doesn't just, all of these, by the way, none of them are just about sobriety and recovery. If you have uh, sexuality issues that you have been hiding. You've been living in the closet about your sexuality. Perhaps you've been living in the closet about your personal identity or about your finances or about, I mean, it it can be anything. Any issue that a human may have is going to approach itself. Now, I brought up the um, sexuality um, topic because I know that from having lived in Los Angeles, that a lot of people who were battling the sexuality component, their gender identity component, because I worked with the LGBT center uh, back when I first moved to Los Angeles, that's where I got some therapy. That's where I'd go for counseling. That's where I would go to help uh, mentor and help other people. And a lot of them in there were having gender identity or sexuality issues where they had yet to be able to fully embrace 
you know, who they believe they were. And one of the coolest things about this center was that there were so many people who were experiencing the same thing and also experiencing the drug and alcohol component of it. Now, I don't say cool thing like, yay, I'm so glad we're all addicted to stuff and we've got a lot of emotional issues that we can't heal, but cool in the fact that everybody was able to get together and support each other as a community. And you will find that there are going to be a lot of different variations of human beings you're going to come across in the sobriety and recovery world. And we want to just embrace all of those people for the wonderful human beings they are and have empathy towards the experiences they've had. We may not have had the same experiences, but we have definitely had our certainty, our variety, our love, our connection, our significance, our contribution shaken at its core. And when we mind read about what other people might be thinking about us or how other people might treat us, we completely block off any opportunity for growth amongst the two people in this particular relationship I'm referencing. So if you've got issues with your husband, your wife, your children, your siblings, your parents, because of years and years and years of addiction and abuse that you may have presented toward them whenever you were at the height of your despair and your addiction, realize that people can heal and you don't know what they're thinking until you ask them. And even when you ask them, it's still being run through their own filters, generalizations and deletions and distortions, not to mention their personality and their mood and their attitude and their experiences and their memories and their beliefs. I mean, there's so many things. There's so many things that could be instigating why somebody treats you the way they do or why they're acting the way they are around you. And if you try to mind read rather than have a conversation, you are going to literally drive yourself into the ground. The blaming ants. Number seven, the lack of personal responsibility. Blaming, complaining, making excuses. This is where that ant shows up. This ant is detrimental to you because it lacks the personal responsibility. It wants to blame everyone else for the lot you have in your life, for the circumstances you're seeking to overcome. Blaming other people takes yourself out of the seat of creator and puts you straight into the seat of victim. You want to live in victimhood? Go for it. But I'm telling you right now, your hands are not on the steering wheel of your own life. The longer you decide to allow the victim mentality to control your actions, feelings, thoughts, all of it. It's just, it's not going to work. Because if you are a victim, that means somebody else is your perpetrator. They're a villain and you're waiting for a savior. And if the, if the villain is out after you, then they are driving your behaviors, their thoughts and your feelings. And if you're waiting for a hero, then you clearly want to give the wheel to somebody else. You are going to feel like you lack control. You're going to feel like you lack uh, an opportunity to heal yourself. You're going to feel like you are just at the whims and mercy of the universe, of the wind, of the storms, of other people's thoughts and feelings and actions if you continue to ride shotgun in your own vehicle of life. Get the hell out of the passenger seat, take the damn wheel, and stop blaming other people. I have said this time and time again, and I will continue to say it till it finally gets through, that your trauma is not your fault. Other people do what people do. And yes, it can suck, it can hurt, it can debilitate, it can break us at our very core. Your trauma is not your fault. Healing it is absolutely your responsibility because no one else is going to do it for you. And you may have been uh, the victim of a assault, of uh, abuse, sexually, mentally, physically, emotionally, any one of those. Right? Somebody may have died in your arms. You may have watched somebody you love be murdered. I mean, there's I could go to the depths of of the vitriol and hate humans can just pour upon one another. You already know enough of those examples. For, I don't need to run through another 30 of them. None of that stuff is necessarily your fault. I have no idea what the circumstances were. Only you know what the circumstances were. But I will go ahead and take you out of any seat of fault that you might have for that and just put you into the seat of it being your responsibility to heal yourself from. I was once written by a listener when I first started this show saying that telling me that my trauma is not my fault, but healing it is my responsibility is triggering to me. And I just wrote back and I'm like, I'm sorry if that's triggering to you. I can't control what triggers you, but I am going to speak my truth while I do this show. Because if you want to continue sitting in that seat where it's somebody else's responsibility to heal, you're going to be waiting an awful long time. 
no matter what happened to you, it's up to you to choose to make that change. You are the one who gets to reap the benefits of it. So you might as well get to going at it right now. Number eight, the less than ants. When we have less than ants, we are comparing ourselves to others or we're comparing ourselves to who we thought we could be or who we thought we wanted to be and all of that jazz. Ah, God, I'd be so much further along in life if I hadn't wasted 22 years of drinking. Well, who am I comparing myself? An idealized version of me that I created at 17 before I went to Ball State University? Or maybe I would compare myself to one of my classmates. Ah, I bet you I would be just as famous and as successful as Aaron Andrews had I stayed in the television program at University of Florida. Or maybe I would be like Pablo Torres on Around the Horn in PTI. I bet you I could have achieved that had I not decided to do drugs and alcohol the whole time I was at UF. They're both graduates of University of Florida, so that's why I reference them. And that's just pretty sure Pablo Torres is. Pretty sure. I feel like I've heard him say that, but I know Aaron Andrews is. And the point being is like I'm comparing myself to others, which is only going to beat me down. When we get locked into this comparison idea, I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough son, daughter, mother, father. I'm not rich. I'm not smart. I'm not sober enough. I'm not strong enough. We're comparing ourselves to something or someone. Is it an ideal version of ourselves? where I'm comparing myself to this idealized picture of Jesse in my mind that I'm not really sure was ever achievable anyways because I'm picturing myself right now as Conan O'Brien, not Conan O'Brien. That guy's body I probably could achieve. But Conan the Barbarian, maybe not so much, right? When we compare ourselves to others, we put ourselves into a seat where we are not going to be able to win that argument inside our heads. We're just not. Because whoever we're comparing ourselves to, we're inevitably going to make higher up on the food chain than us, or why would we compare ourselves to them, right? I mean, now, I definitely have found myself, you know, doing some sort of comparison when I see a homeless person, and I think about how many mornings I woke up sleeping on the street and being like, wow, you know, comparing myself to that person, my life seems amazing. But I don't want to compare myself to a homeless person because I have looked like that person before. I know what it feels like to walk in that person's shoes for a couple days, not for long periods of time, but certainly in just a wackadoodled state to come to on you know a random street in Los Angeles and find yourself 16 miles away from your home, be like, what the fuck has going on for the last three days? I don't want to compare myself to anybody to make myself feel better. And I definitely don't want to compare myself to others in order to feel worse. Stop comparing yourself and just realize that you are who you are, that you're seeking to become who you are in the now. If you don't think that you're strong enough or smart enough or whatever enough, one, realize that you are perfectly amazing the way you are, and there's also so much more with inside you. So seek to achieve those things. Go to the gym or eat healthier. Stop drinking. Stop doing drugs. Stop screaming at people when they upset you and instead figure out why you feel like that's the best way to communicate. Comparing yourself to other people is going to demoralize you. Keeping up with the Joneses is a fruitless endeavor. It will wear you the fuck out. And last but not least, the if only and I'll be happy when. If only we are all very experienced in. If only I hadn't started drinking in 1994, I wouldn't have been a 22-year alcoholic and drug addict. If only I hadn't have moved in with that roommate at Ball State University, I wouldn't have had an unlimited supply of LSD, and I wouldn't have dove off the deep end. If only I hadn't made friends with that one guy, I wouldn't have started dealing cocaine when I was 18 years old that ultimately drove me down this path. If only I hadn't wrecked my 300ZX. If only I had said I love you to my mom more often. If only I had set my parents down in May of 20... Let's see, hold on. It would have been 1994 was whenever they announced their divorce. If only I had set my parents down and talked to them rationally about how much they actually do love each other and how they should seek to keep the union in place so our family could be whole and strong, I would never have been introduced to marijuana on my 18th birthday or LSD three weeks later or cocaine two months later, if only you can walk down that path all the way to when you are coming out of the freaking birth canal. And it's not true. It's just not true. 
Because even if we had shifted that one thing, right, it's that whole butterfly effect. It's the whole like timeline discrepancy. Yes, you can change one thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to give you the outcome that you actually desired. Maybe I don't get into alcohol and drugs in my younger years. I get that sports uh, broadcasting degree. I go off and work at ESPN, and then that's where I find the drugs and the alcohol. Maybe things go completely more sideways. We'll never know because that's not the way time works. Time moves forward until we, of course, learn how to bend the fabric of space and time, and then we discover that Einstein was always alive, and he's actually standing right next to me now. But that's like 300 years from now. In the now that we're in, without the DeLorean and the the, the Marty McFly and the Doc Brown and the Einstein dog, we are literally just living our lives moving forward in this timeline. If only I had done something different then does not necessitate that things would have turned out differently now. Certainly, Things would have turned out differently now, but would they have necessarily turned out differently in the way you think they would have, right? I just stood up to pace back and forth, and now my knee is starting to hurt a little bit more. If only I hadn't gotten up to start pacing back and forth as I finished up this podcast, my knee wouldn't hurt right now. I don't necessarily know if that's true. I could sit back down. Let's try it. Knee still hurts. Now, is it because I stood up? I don't know. But it is what it is. How can I do something about this now? I could do a little massage on it. I could do something. But ultimately, whatever happened, happened. And when we keep going back to past experiences, trying to conjure up ways that if we done something differently, something more beneficial would have occurred, we're wasting time that we could be utilizing in the now to make a change now, to have a different life now. Living in the past isn't going to change anything ever. I will use a universal quantifier. I will use a definitive. I will tell you this without a freaking doubt right now that living in your mind, ruminating on the past, trying to change something in there, expecting it to change something out here in the visceral world is a fool's errand. Because no matter how much you try to conjure up a different behavior from 17 years ago, it is not going to become your reality. It is just going to be a figment of your imagination. It is going to destroy you from the inside. Release. Flow. The only way forward is in the present moment, in the now. And that's where we'll get to the back half of this automatic negative thought. I'll be happy when. So now we're discussing regrets we have in the present, hoping that they'll change in the future. Well, I'll be happy when I lose 50 pounds. Well, clearly, then you are disappointed in how much you weigh now. Oh, wow, look, I sat down for a minute, stood back up, and now the knee doesn't hurt anymore. Isn't that interesting? Oh, yep, there it is. Not important. (laughs) Just wanted to let you know what was going on with my body, apparently. Regrets in the present. I'll be happy when I lose 50 pounds. I'll be happy when I've got three months of sobriety and recovery. I'll be happy when that other person decides that they want to love me again, regardless of my past behaviors. So you've got regrets about your past actions, right? You didn't get 50 pounds overweight in one night. So you've got regrets about all the eating or all the drinking or all the unloving you've done. So I'll be happy when I'm 50 pounds less or three months sober or when that person loves me. So you've got regrets about your past behaviors that you're now experiencing in your present as a hope that you can feel better in the future when this one thing occurs. But here's the problem, is that when we lock ourselves into this, I'll be happy when kind of mentality, it's then we don't get to be happy now. And I don't even seek happiness as a regular emotion. Contentment is awesome. I will take contentment. Because to always be happy means that you don't allow yourself to just feel the humanness that you are. If all you seek is to be happy all the time, then when you get stuck at the seventh consecutive red light when you're already late to work, how are you going to flip that into being happy? Then you just find yourself in this toxic spiral of trying to reframe everything as a happy moment when sometimes things just aren't happy. Sometimes things just suck. It's not sobriety that sucks. It's just life sometimes that can just, it just deals us a bad hand. Fold the cards. Get a new hand, see what you can do with that one. We're often offered thousands upon thousands of new hands of cards every single day. But we want to lock in on that one hand that we think should have turned out differently. But it didn't. 
So don't lock yourself into this spiral of, I can be happy when this occurs. I can be content when this occurs. I can be proud of my sobriety and recovery when I have seven years. Well, that's really unfair to you if you're only at month four or fuck day four. Well, I get to be happy when I've achieved as much sobriety as Jesse has. Well, that's not going to work out for you because each year I'm going to continue achieving more sobriety. So if you're locking your happiness around your sobriety based off of how much time I have, you're going to be chasing me forever because you're never going to catch up to seven years because you're at day four. You can be happy with your day four. Be happy with day 14 and 44 and 444 and month 50. Be happy with all of them. Because there was a day in your life where you didn't think you could go an hour. And now you're going days and days. And yes, a lapse here or there might be part of your journey, might be part of your plot. But it's all working towards a culmination of something. Are you addicted to your automatic negative thoughts? Do you constantly beat the shit out of yourself thinking that that's somehow going to motivate you to get up off the couch and make a massive change in your life? I can inspire you externally, but motivation comes from within. And if it's automatic negative thoughts are just beating you and beating you and beating you down. If you have this all or nothing mentality, I'll be happy when, uh, less than, the blaming, the mind reading, the fortune telling, the guilt beating, the labeling, the just the bad, the all or nothing, all of these ants are perpetrating into your life in some way or another. I've given you an opportunity to really sink your teeth into how these automatic negative thoughts are controlling you, how you're allowing yourself to be in shotgun of your own vehicle of life rather than at the wheel. As somebody who has been working on this stuff for well over seven years now, how I was trying to work on this stuff even when I was a drunk and druggy, I can say that it is a never-ending continuum of effort and determination and discipline in working on myself, that I have snapped and yelled at people that I love just this last week, that I have gotten angry with myself and beaten myself up over decisions that I made a few years ago, that I am like, well, if I had just built this differently then, I would be experiencing it different now. And that may or may not be true. But it's not going to benefit me to ruminate and hold on to this idea that had I started my master's at the, the very first day of COVID, had I been like, you know what, I'm going to get my master's. Yes, I would basically be into the supervision hours of this now. I would be a therapist before I was 50 instead of not being one till I'm 53. But you know what? I finally took the leap and did it. Better than not to have leapt at all. Beating myself up that I didn't spend my nine months um, furloughed off of my job more productively isn't going to magically make anything that I did back then happen now. I did what I did when I did it, thinking it was the best decision for me at the time. Can I certainly look back with hindsight and think, wow, I would have done things differently? Yeah, hindsight's awesome that way. Everything will be clear as day. Everything will be super obvious to you from the perspective of hindsight until, of course, another month or three or seven or 17 more of hindsight. (laughs) Even the hindsight you think you're now perceiving what you should have done then differently now is not going to be the same hindsight you're going to utilize in three months or 30 months. Even then it's going to change. So even your hindsight is not concrete. It is fluid, it is flexible, it is dynamic. Holding yourself up to an idealized version of yourself or holding people down, saying that they didn't do this, that, or the other and expecting that that's going to benefit anybody in the now is, it is, it is literally the black hole of despair. Wake yourself up. Stop being addicted to automatic negative thoughts. Release them as much as you possibly can each and every time that they infiltrate inside your brain. They really are like those sugar ants. Once they get in your house, it is damn nearly impossible to eradicate them completely. But I'm not looking for absolute eradication. I'm not looking for perfection. I'm looking for progression. That's what we're looking for here. A step forward each and every day. And maybe there's a couple steps back and a couple steps forward. And a couple steps back. But the important thing is that we stay on our feet. We don't allow ourselves to be fixed. And we keep seeking a way forward. Day in and day out. 
That sun's going to rise. That sun's going to set. What are you going to do with your time? Be mindful of how you're spending it now. And maybe there'll be a little bit less rumination then about what you should have been doing different now. Because in the now, you're observant of your now, doing what will benefit you now to even benefit you more then. Have fun figuring out what the hell I just said. As always, my friends, if you would like to dive in more to this, check out some of the ads that are getting ready to run at the end of this episode. I didn't mention this during the show, but I'm going to be running an emotional resiliency course uh, all geared around helping you be more skilled in your emotional intelligence, in your emotional resiliency, not allowing little hiccups throughout your day to debilitate you in the, in the moment and that, so that you can more freely experience your emotions. Do you feel like your emotions control you? Do you feel like your emotions dominate you? Do you feel like you're at the mercy of your mind and your heart rather than being the one in the driver's seat? Then you should go to jessemogul.com slash ask me. You should fill out the form for the coaching. I'm running an entire course. I'm actually going to bring it directly to you, the listener, at an extremely reduced rate. It's going to be four weeks. I assure you, this will only change everything. If you've wanted to get into neuro-linguistic programming with me, but maybe didn't want to do the the 10-12 week course. This is much more bite-sized and I promise you on the other side of it is an emotional resiliency that you only believed was out there for you, but you weren't quite in the knowing. Talk to me. Let's see what we can do. As always, my friends, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. Every day is the best day of our lives when we wake up sober. Shout out to Sunshine and Robert. Glow on. See you next time. Bye-bye. 